Hello, and welcome to Mr. Benson's Extraordinarium. In 1917, New Zealand-born physicist Ernest Rutherford created an artificial nuclear reaction which became known as splitting the atom. This isn't to say nuclear fission. That wouldn't happen until a year after his death in 1937. That discovery would be through a collaboration between German scientists Otto Hahn, Fritz Strassmann, Otto Frisch and Lisa Meitner. Of course, in less than a decade, a destructive force unlike anything ever seen before would be unleashed and humanity would enter the atomic age. The promise of new therapies, a fuel source that might take us into outer space, of cheap energy with a dramatically reduced carbon footprint were gradually overshadowed by the proliferation of atomic weapons and concerns about what exactly to do with the highly dangerous waste byproducts. In this episode, I present to you three true tales leaning on the darker side of nuclear physics. From a technological hitch that almost destroyed the Earth, to a disaster created by negligence, to a story that could almost be inspiring if things hadn't gone so badly. Our first story today, I have titled Judgment Day. Almost. You see, on the 26th of September 1983, I was almost killed in a conflict of global proportions. And if you were born on this day or prior to it, you were almost killed too. Perhaps not immediately, but eventually. A movie being filmed at the time, The Terminator, forewarned of computers becoming self-aware and turning on their masters, and attempting to eradicate us with a nuclear holocaust. But as the old Hollywood trope goes, one man stands in their way. In the highly unlikely event you haven't seen this film, I'll not spoil it for you any further. That aspect of the overall storyline, however, is eerily similar to what took place that day, on my eighth year on Earth. The computer in question was far from self-aware and harboured no feelings of malevolence. It was simply malfunctioning, and from what we know of the culture that spawned it, it was probably far from state-of-the-art despite being new. The man, however, is one of the greatest heroes the world has ever known, or, for the most part, not known. Lieutenant Colonel Stanislav Petrov was on duty at the command centre of the Soviet early warning satellites, situated in a bunker just outside Moscow. Shortly after midnight, the computer reported a single nuclear missile was en route from the US to the USSR. Petrov a bead of sweat no doubt trickling down his face, elected to ignore the warning. Logic told him that a nuclear strike from the US would be orders of magnitude greater than a lone ICBM. Had he followed procedure, he'd have reported it. And under the doctrine of mutually assured destruction, or MAD, yes, really, a chain of events would have been set in motion that would have almost certainly resulted in a full-scale nuclear response in turn triggering the US to do the same. When the alarm was raised that four more missiles were on their way, it is said that Petrov's legs buckled. But he held his nerve and dismissed that warning also. The computer, as it turns out, had indeed malfunctioned. And by second-guessing it, and using his instincts, he averted a nuclear holocaust which left me free to ride around aimlessly on my BMX friends in tow, eating Sunny Boy ice blocks and enjoying the spring air. 
completely oblivious to how close I came to playing the role of an extra in the theatre of war. A month later, we almost waltzed into Armageddon for a second time during the NATO exercise Able Archer 83. But that is a story for another day. And Petrov? Well, he was initially praised, but was ultimately reprimanded for insufficiently documenting his actions. The stress from that night would take its toll, and he would later suffer a nervous breakdown. The man whose clear thinking and logic saved all life on Earth passed away without ceremony on May 19, 2017, from pneumonia, aged 77. In 1985, the Goyanya Institute of Radiotherapy had a problem. They were relocating and were unable, or possibly unwilling, to take everything with them, at least not immediately. And so an array of mostly antiquated equipment was left behind at their old premises, which included a very large and heavy teletherapy unit, which contained cesium-137, a radioactive isotope, and a byproduct of the nuclear fission of uranium. It was a move that was in defiance of their license, and it would come back to bite them. After the initial move, the old premises became the subject of a dispute of ownership, and the Goyanya Institute of Radiotherapy was refused entry while a court battle ensued, leaving the fate of the teletherapy unit hanging in the balance. Despite it being noted by the court, that it was aware of the machine, and furthermore, aware of its radioactive contents. Nonetheless, the machine remained in the now abandoned and partly demolished building, with only a part-time security guard standing between its deadly contents and the one million-plus residents of the city outside. Enter Roberto de Sandes Alves, pardon my accent, and Wagner Morta Pereira. The enterprising pair had heard about the abandoned machine and its size and weight, and thought it could bring a pretty penny on the scrap metal market. And so, they hatched a plan, and on the 13th of September 1987, whilst the lone security guard was away, they entered the abandoned building. The unit required specialist equipment to dismantle for obvious reasons, so the two thieves left almost empty-handed. Almost, I say, because... They were able, with their rudimentary tools, to remove the cylindrical rotating shutter that contained the cesium-137, and carried it away in a wheelbarrow. The two men started dismantling the cylinder and began to feel ill, with Pereira finding his left hand swollen and a burn mark on it the size and shape of the exposure aperture. He sought medical help, but was diagnosed with a food allergy of unknown origin. Some three days after the theft, Alves was able to puncture the capsule's aperture window and saw within a glowing blue granulated substance. He retrieved some and, thinking it was gunpowder, tried to light it. Two days after that, he would sell the capsule to a scrap metal dealer named Devere Alves Ferreira, who, upon noticing the glowing blue substance and thinking it something supernatural, brought it into his house to show it off to friends and family, before on selling it to yet another scrapyard, but not before one of his friends and his brother Ivo removed some of the glowing radioactive material and shared it with their circle of friends and extended family, with some neighbours taking samples home for good luck. One planned to use a rice-sized piece as the centrepiece of a ring for his wife, 
another, drew a cross on his abdomen with it. His brother Ivo would take some home where his six-year-old daughter, Leedy, fascinated by the seemingly magical substance, applied it to her skin. Whilst covered in the dust, Leedy would eat an egg sandwich, ingesting a fatal dose of radiation in the process. I've decided to spare you the details of her ordeal, but needless to say, it was harrowing. It was some 15 days after the theft of the device that Ferreira's wife Gabriella, after becoming violently ill herself, began to connect the dots. It seemed that everyone around her was taken ill about the same time that the mysterious glowing powder had turned up in their lives. She retrieved the device and what remained of its luminous blue contents and took them to the nearest hospital, where the next day it was identified as radioactive. The aftermath of the incident would see her lose her life, along with two of her husband's employees, aged just 18 and 22 respectively, and of course her six-year-old niece, Leedy. A further 249 people were found to have significant levels of radiation. The operators of the Radiotherapy Institute were charged with criminal negligence. The Chernobyl disaster the previous year was still in the news cycle, and Goiania fell somewhat by the wayside. But the cleanup was no small feat. It had created over 3,000 cubic metres of contaminated waste. With over 40 houses contaminated, several needing to be demolished. Over 100,000 people were monitored for radiation, and contamination was found over 100 miles or 160 kilometres away, cesium-137 being water-soluble. Ferreira, suffering depression, would drink himself to death within seven years. And while it's been overshadowed by other nuclear incidents around the world, it was a disaster nonetheless. The Goiania incident is a little told story of the extraordinary repercussions that sometimes happen at the crossroads of negligence, poverty, lack of education and misguided good intentions. On the 31st of August 1994, police in Gulf Manor, Michigan, received a report that a young man was stealing tyres from a car. Hardly the crime of the century, and Gulf Manor, a sleepy subdivision 25 miles outside of Detroit, wasn't the kind of place where one expected to find major criminal activity. The police who responded found the suspect sitting in his Pontiac car. David Hahn told the officers he was waiting to meet a friend. Given that it was 2.40am and Hahn wasn't particularly forthcoming with any details about said friend, a search of Hahn's Pontiac was conducted. When police opened the boot, they found 50-plus foil-wrapped tubes containing an unidentified grey powder, small discs and cylindrical objects, mercury switches, lantern mantles, a clock face, vacuum tubes, various chemicals, and a padlock toolbox wrapped in duct tape for added security. When asked about the contents of the toolbox, Hahn warned them that it was radioactive. The police now feared it may be an atomic bomb, and that they may have unwittingly uncovered a terrorist plot. But it wasn't a terrorist cell, and the radioactive material wasn't a bomb. What they had found was a very clever and very eccentric adolescent boy's science project. Hahn, in his spare time, was trying to build a nuclear reactor in his mum's garden shed. David Hahn was a boy scout, 
and had become interested in building a functioning nuclear reactor after garnering a merit badge for his interest in atomic energy, which he earned after making a drawing demonstrating how fission occurs and building a little model. But a little model didn't satisfy the lad. He wanted a working reactor. He had always had an interest in science, particularly chemistry, and like the stereotypical mad scientist, his constant experimenting was punctuated by small explosions and other accidents, and more interesting instances like the time he decided to test methods of artificial tanning and arrived at a scout meeting with a bright orange face from overdosing on carotenoid pigment. But this time an atomic reactor was what was in the boy's sights, and he had set about gathering the necessary materials. There was americium from smoke detectors, thorium from camping lantern mantles, radium from clocks, tritium from gun sights, but it wasn't just trace amounts from household items. Hahn wrote to a Czechoslovakian firm that sold uranium to universities, and, posing as a professor, obtained some samples. This, along with a hollowed-out block of lead to serve as the core, and all the pieces of the reactor puzzle were in place. Hahn, while fairly slapdash with regard to personal protective equipment and other safety measures, did have the presence of mind to check radiation levels during his experiment. He hadn't achieved his desired critical mass, but had achieved making a neutron source, and when the Geiger counter began picking up radiation from several houses away, David Hahn decided the materials needed to be split up, which is how radioactive material ended up in the boot of the Pontiac. After the police investigated, a clean-up of his mother's house took place in June of 1995, but his very thoughtful mother had already thrown the bulk of the radioactive material out with the household waste. The shed itself was taken down by men in radiation suits and sealed in drums before being taken away to the amazement of the onlooking neighbours. So whatever happened to the man that would come to be known as the radioactive Boy Scout? Well, after the suicide of his mother and the breakup with his then-girlfriend the following year, he floundered around for a while, eventually joining the military after graduating high school. The Navy, in fact, assigned to the USS Enterprise, a nuclear-powered aircraft carrier. He would eventually receive an honourable discharge on medical grounds and went home to Michigan. On the 1st of August 2007, he was again charged with larceny after removing the smoke detectors from the halls of his apartment building. His intention? To get the americium they contained. For this, he would receive psychiatric treatment. On the 27th of September 2016, David Hahn passed away from a cocktail of alcohol and drugs. A sad ending to what could have, under the right tutelage, been a brilliant life. I mean, how many high school students have tried to build a working nuclear reactor to scale in their back shed, and very nearly succeeded? That, I think, is extraordinary. You've been listening to Mr. Benson's Extraordinarium. Created, researched, and hosted by me, Dan Benson. If you enjoyed the show, hit the subscribe button and continue to join me as I uncover extraordinary stories from around the globe and throughout history. Till next time, peace, love, light. Take care, catch ya.